During Lent this year, we are in a series that's entitled Counterfeit Gods. It's a series where we're reading a book by Tim Keller. We're discussing this on Wednesday nights of the same title. And we're essentially, we're asking the question, what are the false gods, the idols, the things that we turn to in our lives to give us a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of identity? What are the things that we look at that as we discussed over the last couple of weeks are not bad things? Most of the idols that exist in our life are not bad things at all, but rather they are good things God has given us that we have started overvaluing, that we've started looking to to give us a sense of worth and identity, and they can't. Last week we talked about the idol, for example, of love and relationships and marriage. Talked about how that's not, none of those are bad, but if that we are looking for someone to make us complete, to fulfill us and make us happy, then we will look for the rest of our lives and never truly find it. But the narratives that exist in our culture that we're surrounded by tell us differently. Tell us that it is possible, it's just not something we've found. What does it mean to turn from those idols and turn with full minds, full hearts, full selves back to the one God who does offer us fulfillment? Life, as the scriptures say, offers us life abundant and life eternal. What does it mean to repent in this time of Lent? And repent means to turn and move in a new direction, to turn from false gods and to turn to the one true God. And today, we're going to continue in that discussion by looking at the idol of money, our wealth, and our possessions. To do so, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And before we read the scripture passage, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us all this morning about how we gather from many perspectives, with many questions, with many doubts, with many dreams, and ask that you would give us open minds and open hearts to consider the fullness of your call upon us all this morning and what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Then someone came to Jesus, to him, and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all of these, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Now this is a kind of curious passage of scripture, because in all honesty, we're not certain what it is that's motivating this rich young man to come and talk to Jesus. Maybe he's trying to trick Jesus. Like we're in a series in Matthew here where the Pharisees are trying to do that over and over and over again to prove that he is a false teacher. Maybe, they're trying, maybe this young man is conceited. 
and needs to kind of be humbled. I mean, it seems a little weird when he says, you know, you need to love your neighbor as yourself and you need to honor your father and mother. You need to keep all these commandments. And the answer is, oh yeah, I've done all those every day. And I'm thinking there are lots of times I'm not even certain what those mean, much less whether I'm following them perfectly, much less to stand in front of Jesus and go, oh yeah, I'm doing all those perfectly. So maybe there's sort of a sense where he's kind of conceited, maybe a little obnoxious as he comes before Jesus. Or maybe he's really earnest. Maybe he's really earnest and seeking and acknowledges Jesus' power and is asking for for real guidance and direction. We don't know what his motivations are, but what we know is, is that while he claims to be following all of these different laws and all of these different commandments, that Jesus then gives him an action step. He says to him that if you want to inherit eternal life, you have to share, sell all of your possessions and give them away to the poor. It says the young man goes away sad because he had many possessions and couldn't do it. While we don't know what motivates this young man, what we do know is that he struggles with an idol that most all of us struggle with today as well. Idol of our money, of our possessions, of our stuff, of our finances. And as Tim Keller says in his chapter on, on this in Counterfeit Gods, he says that this is probably the idol that most of us realize is an idol, but we don't think we have it. Right? We know other people who have it. We know other people that are greedy. We know other people that should be doing different stuff with their money, but that doesn't apply to us. He says that in all of his time as a pastor, he's had folks come and sort of confess and have conversations about what he says are all seven of the deadly sins and how it's wreaking havoc in their, havoc in their life, all except greed. He said nobody has ever come to him as a pastor and go, I've got this issue, it's destroying my marriage, it's destroying my life, it's just that I'm spending too much on myself. And I just need help with what to do. I love my money and my stuff and my house and my, I love it too much and I don't know what to do about it. He said he's never had someone come to him. This, this, this deluding ourselves, this de- illusion that we don't have the same that the rich young man, we probably hear this passage and go, oh, I know people that are like that, right? And yet, is it not us? Is he not speaking to us? We, we live under an illusion. There was an article recently in the Statesman, and some of you probably saw it, that uh, a, a, na- a major national institute looked at economic segregation in major metropolitan areas around the country and ranked what are the most segregated. Where are the, the, the cities where there's the biggest gap between the few who have and the many who don't have very much? And of all the cities in the United States, Austin, Texas is ranked as number one. It's the number one city, according to this ranking, of the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And yet I've heard many people that read that article and go, oh, that's not true. You're like, it's numbers. They go, oh, it's not true. You can make numbers say anything. We're not number one. And that's what they get hung up on. You're like, well, whether we're number one or number four or number seven on this list, as followers of Jesus, it ought to disturb us, the gap that exists in our city between the few who possess much and the many who possess little. And yet what we do is sit there and get caught under, do we think it's true or not? Do we agree with the study that's been done? Or when you take our individual lives, Do you realize that we live today, we are blessed to live in the wealthiest country in the world. 
We live in a world where the UN says as much as a quarter of the global population lives in what they call abject poverty. Families living on less than a dollar a day. And yet in this world where we have so much, so many of us, and maybe the wealthiest country in the history of the world, if you can imagine that, but less than 2% of Americans say that we're well off. Most all of us say we're middle class. And we're the, the world would look at us and laugh at that very notion. And yet we're convinced of it in our lives because there's something about our brokenness and there's something about our sin that continues to believe that we should compare ourselves in terms of wealth and money and class with the few that have more than us rather than the many who have less. There's something in our brokenness that really believes. And Keller writes that maybe it's because money is an access. And when we have money, we live in certain neighborhoods, we go to certain clubs, we eat at certain restaurants, and so we live in these bubbles that money gives us access to, and we only compare ourselves to the people we see around us. That's what happens in an economically segregated city. And so we just surround ourselves with people like us who have much what we have, and then we just think that we're sort of regular, not realizing that we're living in this bubble in the midst of a vast ocean of people that are different. What he's saying is, is that this is an idol both corporately for us as a people in our culture and individually in our lives that we struggle with and few of us actually realize it. We think it applies to someone else. Well, I want us to consider today that we may not be the best barometers of whether we struggle with it or not. And I'd like you to consider for a minute that this may be an idol that all of us in some ways or another bow before to give us what it can't. Here's what I mean by that. Money in and of itself is not a good or a bad thing. I don't believe biblically it's either a good or a bad thing. But what it represents for us is what we actually need to get in touch with. Money allows us certain things, right? For some people, money may be an access to a sense of status, to a sense of a lifestyle, to a sense of having stuff. It may be a way that we look at it and say, well, we can live in the right neighborhoods and send our kids to the right school and do the right things, and this allows us a way into that. And it's in there, it's in that lifestyle that we find a sense of status and identity and meaning. It may be in our accomplishments and in the houses we live in and the cars we drive that we find a sense of meaning and worth and value. We might live, therefore, a lavish lifestyle. We may live beyond our means in order to maintain a lifestyle and be in the right circles and serve on the right boards and live in the, go to the right restaurants. And I mean, debt is a major issue in our society. Why is that? Because we can't let go of what we think it allows us, and yet it never fills that void that lives within us all. So one of us, for some of us, what money might actually represent is a deeper issue of a lifestyle and identity that we just keep throwing into that God-sized void in us seeking meaning, thinking someday we'll have enough, earn enough, do enough that we'll feel fulfilled. Money offers an access to a lifestyle. Now for others of us, it's completely the opposite. For others of us, money might offer a sense of control and security. We may not be spending more than we have. We may be not be living this lavish lifestyle. We may be this kind of person that's squirreling everything away, right? That thinks the more I have and the more I have saved and the more that I have in my possession, the more ready I am for what's going on. We're people that, that might be quite 
cheap and miserly with what we have. We might be people that are just ready for anything, that we're people that look with anxiety at what's happening in Russia and what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in the global economy, and we're just ready. We're ready for when doomsday comes to be prepared to be agile in any scenario. Now, we may not be spending and living in debt and the things that we see other people doing, but that doesn't mean that money's any less of an idol for us because what it's representing is a sense of security and control. Money can represent a whole host of things for us. But as we did last week and as we must do with counterfeit gods, we must look at those narratives and see them for what they truly are. See those narratives for what they are. For example, if money is something that allows us to have a lifestyle, that allows us to have the right things, to be in the right places, to know the right people, to have our kids know the right people, to have all the different doors open up that it can, that's not a bad thing necessarily at all. But when that becomes something that we look to for a sense of ourselves and who we are and our worth and our value and what we believe the future hinges on, we'll never be fulfilled. We'll never have that lifestyle. We'll never have the thing where we think, it's made, I've made. I've got everything I wanted. There's always a keeping up with the Joneses. There's always someone who has more. There's always someone who has access to something we don't. Always will be, except for one person. I don't know who that person is, but whoever it is out there that's at the top of every food chain, you know, probably owns island somewhere. Maybe they, they, they don't have that, but all the rest of us will always have people we're trying to keep up with. And let me go ahead and be clear that whoever that person is, is not equal to fulfillment at all. But we will never have what it is that we're truly hoping for of one day just going, I've got everything I want and I feel great and life's great and everything's perfect. It's a lie, it's an illusion that we keep pursuing that can't give us what we're looking for. It can't give us meaning. On the same way, if, 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 for instance, if we're about security and control and saving and kind of keeping everything so that we're ready for, for any situation that might come, we need to understand that we are locked into a lifestyle of anxiety and worry. Recessions teach us that no one is bulletproof. You cannot have enough safety nets out there that guarantee you'll be okay no matter what. We need to be responsible, but you cannot be prepared for everything. You are not in control, no matter how much we have that makes us feel that way, and you'll never feel that you have enough. You never will. And so it's constantly this race of hoarding and keeping and not spending and worry and anxiety and making those around you miserable for a goal that will never be realized, a goal that will never find an end. And so no matter who we are, we must be a people today who see where this idol exists in our lives, exists in our culture, and ask the question, what does it mean to turn from this idol, from this counterfeit God, to one who offers us abundance? For the one who says that if you're looking for security or status or uh, if you're looking for a lifestyle, if you're looking to feel like you've made it, find your, your status in this. You are my beloved for whom I gave my only begotten child. What more need do you have to know anything about your worth or your value than that? You are loved. And if you're looking for security, If you're looking for who's in control, we turn to the one who says, I take care of the birds of the air, I take care of the lilies of the field. What will worry gain you at all? Nothing. Trust me. 
that while you may not know who hold, what the future holds, you know who holds the future. Trust me. Turn towards me. And live a life of abundance and freedom from these idols that plague us and enslave us and our hearts. So how do we do that? How do we turn towards God? How do we turn from this idol no matter where it exists in our lives? Well, the good news, friends, is the answer is incredibly simple. You don't have to have a PhD in philosophy. You don't have to be able to go back to the Greek and Hebrew to understand what it really means. There is a very clear biblical way that we turn towards God, and that is this, that every single one of us is called to be breathtakingly, extravagantly generous. We are called, as Acts 2 said, as we've been studying about this year, to be an extravagantly generous community where we experience the joy of giving, the joy of giving away, the joy of seeing other people's lives changed and transformed, where we turn to the God who, who we trust for our security and say we are going to live as followers of the one who gave his own life away, who held nothing back for the love of this world, and we are going to try to do the same thing, just as you asked this rich young ruler to do. We're not going to have a goal of 5% or 10%. We're not going to sit there and go, what's the bar that I have to, the, to cross? We are going to seek to shock ourselves and others with generosity just as God's love in Jesus shocks us and how it held nothing back. That's what we're called to do. It's very simple. You and I are all called to be people who know what comes in, who knows what go out, and we know how much we're giving away to others. That's the steps. As followers of Jesus, we need to know what comes in. We need to know what our incomes are. We need to know what we get through inheritance. We need to know and be aware of what comes in to our lives. Not going, well, it seems like more than last year. No, we need to know what comes in. We need to know the numbers that come in. And we need to track and know where our money goes. I promise you, if you don't track it, it will shock you what you spend money on and how much you spend money on that you're not aware of. I promise you it will. We need to track what comes in, we need to track where it goes, and we all need to be people who seek every month, every year, to give more away as followers of Jesus. Rather than closing with an example of a person who's doing that, I want to tell you about how we as a church are seeking to do that. You're going to hear more about this at the annual meeting today. But as many of you know, if you've been here for a while, this church has had to deal with uh, its fair share of struggles when it comes to money in recent years. We have had debt on our fellowship and education building that we have to worry about and pay attention to. It costs us money each month to pay for the, the debt on that building. We've had giving that's along with the debt caused us to have to make some difficult decisions as a church. We've had to cut staff, we've had to cut programs, and we've had to cut our mission giving, what we give away. So while we're saying that we're supposed to be people who know what comes in, knows what goes out, and we're seeking to be more generous, we've actually been giving less and less of a percentage away in recent years because of constraints, because of hardship, because of debt. And we've been wrestling with that. The good news is that this past fall, we invited you to move towards Pledge Sunday where we pledged our giving and our 2014 numbers ended quite strong. 
And we invited you to, to think about God's faithfulness and to, as we talked about, to remember your story, if you remember that, to think about how God's been faithful to you in your past and then to step out of the boat in faith that God will continue to be faithful to us as we live generous lives. And the response from this congregation was overwhelming. The response from this congregation was something that very few churches ever have to deal with, which is going, so what do we do? Because our pledged income was so high for 2015 that we were able to fund every department's budget that they wanted without going back and saying, you need to cut 10%, you need to cut 12% to make your numbers. We were able to give every department what they asked for. And on top of that, budgeting very conservatively, for those of you number people in the room, very conservatively, we had still more than $200,000 that we had to figure out what do we do? Because we funded everybody. Now, if given enough time, churches are like people. We will figure out stuff to spend it on, right? We will figure out all kinds of programs that we have to do again or that we need to hire this. I mean, you leave it to me. I will figure out how that money can go in like that. But what our elders did is over a series of months, they really prayed and really wrestled about what to do. And they discerned a vision, a vision that leans into these values and these teachings. It's a vision to guide us of where we want to go in the future when it comes to being a community in Austin that is extravagantly generous. And that vision is that we will be a church that seeks to love our neighbor as ourself financially. Jesus says the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean financially? That rather than saying, could we get back to 10%, which is not a biblical vision of giving, it's the lowest teaching that you can basically find, what would it mean to give a dollar away for every dollar we spend on ourselves? What would it mean to say 10 years from now, 15 years from now, that while our operating budget is still who knows, two and a half million dollars, that actually this pledge Sunday we need to raise five million dollars. Because we are going to shower the city of Austin with a generosity that will take its breath away. We are gonna shower the city of Austin constantly with a love that if Covenant Presbyterian Church went away, this city would stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a major loss for who we are and what we're about. Now to do that, we're gonna to have to handle some things. We're gonna to have to handle our debt. Do you know that right now in our budget, we are paying about $30,000 a month out of our operating budget to the remaining debt on the Fellowship and Education Building. And we cannot be the kind of generous community that we are called to be as long as that remains. So we're gonna to have to take some steps in that direction. So to do that, what we did is this. We said that we're gonna begin by taking this extra $200,000, and let me go ahead and say it, because I've heard this nasty word, it's not a surplus, we're already spending it. You need to keep up with your pledges, okay? <laughs> I, that's actually not a joke, I'm being serious. <laughs> You're still laughing, I'm being serious. What we're doing with that is that we are monthly taking half of it, over $100,000, and writing monthly checks to pay off the principal on the debt of this building. And we are gonna take further steps so that this church is debt-free in the very near future. 
but we are also taking 50% of it and giving it away in the city and around the world. We've gone to the mission committee and said, you have 100,000 extra dollars. You need to give it away. And don't wait till December to see if it comes in. Give it away where you see need. Give it away in this city. Give it away in this world. We're going to start with this extra money that was pledged, and we are going to seek to love our neighbors as ourselves to free us from the burden that we are living under of debt and to charge into a future of freedom and extravagant, breathtaking generosity. We will be this place as Jesus calls us to be. But to get there, you're gonna have to continue to be breathtakingly generous as well, all of us. It's not about the amount. We can all sit there and go, well, if that person was generous, it'd all be taken care of. Jesus says that where we're to be generous and where he lauds it is one who gives two coins to an old woman who gives two coins because she gives not out of her surplus, but she gives out of what she has. May you do the same. May we do the same. May this church do the same. And as we go, to God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead and guide us in what it means to take people's breath away, maybe even ourselves, with a generous lifestyle. That we would experience the joy of giving to others that we would see the idol of money and wealth and possessions that exist in our lives, that we will see the false promises they make, and that we will turn our whole selves towards you and you alone. Help us to take steps towards that this week and always. In Jesus' name, amen.